And we're rolling? We're on. All right. Boom. Back for 2024 on Country Drive. And I am honored to welcome our guest today, Mr. Joe West. Hello. The Joe West. The Joe West. Yeah. Do you know why people in Pittsburgh call you that? Well, I did a record for a band called Anti-Flag, which was a ginormous punk underground punk record. And we were mixing the record in New York City. And I had my feet, I had my shoes off because I spent my whole life in the recording studio. And they had this Trident concert. I had my foot up and and I had my big toe is shaped like a light bulb. It's giant. So they said in the credits for that record, it says, Joe, uh, Joe, the big toe West. And I think it might have started from the V in front of the big toe. Joe, the biggest toe in the business is what they said. I had an alternate theory about it. Uh, so Pittsburgh, just tell me if I'm right about this. Are they in the National League? I mean, the Pirates? Yeah. So there is an umpire who's very famous yeah. named Joe West. And that is why I think people from Pittsburgh decided to call you the Joe West. Well, I, I was playing a, uh, a gala for the American Heart, uh, big fancy gala, the whatever, the Heart Association. Yeah. It was me and um, Taylor Hicks was the other guest. And I'm playing, and they've got these big jumbotrons on the side of the stage, and I'm playing the whole time. And I look over at the jumbotron, and it says, Joe West, the rhinestone cowboy. As I'm playing, I'm like, what is happening? And evidently, there's another Joe West from um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. There's a couple of Joe Wests around. There's a black Joe West that plays the airport a bunch and has had some hit songs. And so there's... I guess the name has made its way around, and I don't know why I would get the designation the Joe West. I well, mean, I'm honored, but I didn't give it to it. myself. It's probably the big toe. I'm excited to hear about the output of work that you're going to be having here in the future because you're on a little bit of a health journey. You want to talk about that? Sure. So tell me about what your health journey. So I bought this scale that tells you everything, and when you step on it, it will tell you all your subcutaneous fat, your BMI, all the stuff, right? And one of the things it tells you is uh, it tells you your uh, your metabolic age. And it said I was 60. Uh-oh. So I was just like crushed. And I'm 54. So I just felt the responsibility to be 54. So that's my goal is to be 54. So since September, I have been just huge lifestyle change and working out and cold plunges and, you know, breathing Wim Hof, breathing exercises uh, some with consequence. I knocked myself out in the shower, passed out. Did, did you know this? No. Yeah, I got six stitches over here. They glued it. It would have been six stitches. So I was doing the Wim Hof breathing method in the shower, which he specifically says, Terrible do not idea. do. Terrible idea. can't do that. And um, I did it because I wanted to have my brain thinking about something else. And I was doing my my cold shower for 10 minutes because that's how long the breathing exercise takes and it just was a, a mechanism for me to keep my mind off of it and um i don't even remember passing out but i not i ended up waking up on the floor of my shower my shower is like it's like the length of this room and it's like um it's got a big glass wall so it's a hallway my shower is essentially a hallway so there was nothing to catch my fall wow so i just went down what I, and I don't know this because I was unconscious, and I don't remember feeling dizzy or anything. I just remember waking up on the floor of my shower three weeks ago, and I was like, it was as if I was waking up from like a really nice sleep. 
like when you're rousted from sleep, when like you're, you know, some music, you start to hear external things. And I'm hearing this music, you know, cause I keep a timer going with music and, and I'm like, what am I, what, I mean, on the floor of a cold shower, you know, coming to, and I'm just like, waking up. It's very, it was very comforting until I realized I was on the floor of the shower and, and I had knocked myself out, either hitting the little stool we have that's built into the wall there or just hitting my head on the ground. And then I was like, I'm okay. You know, whenever, anytime you get yourself, your bell rung, you're always like, am I okay? What, you know, you do a real quick analysis of your state of, you know, how bad it is. And I was like, okay, no blood. And I'm feeling around. And I was like, okay, no blood. And then I start to get up. And I looked out in the shower is just covered, covered. Oh. It looks like somebody slaughtered a pig in there. Were you home alone? No, my wife was home. Thankfully, she drove me to the hospital. I knew since I was an EMT um, after September the 11th, I went and became a volunteer EMT in my town in North of New York City. So um, I knew that since I was unconscious, I, would, I was going to have to go to the doctor. And I knew at that point, I knew I needed stitches because it was a big open gash. And um, But I cleaned up the whole murder scene before I went and told my wife because I did, you know, so I'm in there swapping up all this blood on the floor and hiding a towel. Wow. And then she took me up. I got an MRI. Turns out I'm just fine. I, you know, but I, to this day, I always thought, oh, maybe I'll start to remember how it happened. Cause you know, you, but I don't have any recollection of even feeling faint. I just remember waking up on the floor. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. So I don't do the I don't do the Wim Hof breathing exercises in the shower. I would imagine that's not a good idea. Absent of passing out in the shower, I did want to ask you because I'm sure there's a lot of people who respect you as a man that works in the studio and behind the board. It can be a sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. Have you noticed a, a significant impact on your ability to work? I tell you this: I can jump down under the console and not have a plan to get back up. When you're a fat guy, you have to have a plan on getting back up. The other thing I tell people is that you know a fat guy, fellow fat guys know other fat guys, I was 300 pounds, by their tennis shoes because the bows are on the side because they have to bring their legs up like this to tie them. So the bows are over on the insides of each of their shoes. Now you got me checking. Yeah, so um, I can get down and I, when you, as a fat guy, when you get down, you have to be like, okay, how am I getting back up? I need to grab a chair and sort of, you know, it's kind of like pulling yourself through a small hole in a submarine, you know, you have to have a plan. And now I jump up, jump down. I have no joint pain. Um, I, I don't know who to believe. One of the consequences that I learned through COVID was just like ancient Greece with Aristotle and Socrates, we're searching for truth. And there's never been more data available to people, but there's never been the conclusion that you can ever get to truth because for everything you search on the internet, you'll find somebody saying it's uh, snake oil. Right. So um, what I decided to do was just, I found that guy, Gary Brecka, mm -hmm. who's a human biologist. And I was like, I really liked what he was saying. And I'm like, I'm just going to do this. And there's a version of what I'm doing that costs 150 grand, or there's a version where you just go outside and put your feet on the earth and earth. Cause I do that. And you get some vitamin D and you get to ground and you do cold water in a shower. You don't have to buy a big tank. And, you know, so I've done all the free versions of it because I'm from Pittsburgh and I'm cheap. Have you ever heard of Sonic Bloom? Mm -mm. So but let me finish this. Sorry. But the only thing I believe now is my experience. And it's the consequence of the culture we're in. And I feel better than I've ever felt. So I'm going to keep doing it until, and I did it this morning. I'll keep doing it until 
uh, I have a negative consequence. It's yeah. the only way to really know nowadays what is, you know, what is truth? What is the right thing to do? I feel great and, and I'll keep doing it until I don't. That's awesome. And for people just listening, Joe is not fat and he looks extremely healthy and great right now. So I don't know what all this fat talk is about. It's 300 pounds. Were you really? 295. 298 was the highest I got. And I almost thought to myself, man, I'm just going to push it. I'm going to get over 300 because it was such a mile marker, you yeah. know? And then I remembered, like, as a kid, William the Refrigerator Perry played for Chicago. He was the first NFL player to go over 300 pounds. And it was a huge deal. And now, of course, they're 360, you know, whatever they are. The average weight is way above that. But I remember thinking to myself, I'm the weight of William the Refrigerator Perry. I'm six foot threes, and, I, and I've been blessed with, like, this proportion where I kind of look like, hey, did that guy play football or rugby? Right, so yeah. I could get away with it with with a personality like mine, like um, OCD about stuff. I just pushed the envelope until I was two hundred ninety eight pounds before I cut down. Well, then let me add it. Let me edit my last comment and just say Joe is looking great nowadays. I'm two forty five right now. Wow, that's yeah, awesome, man. Two forty five. For people that are listening and learning about you, since you are a man behind the scenes, just give us the quick uh, background. Started out as a mixing engineer in Pittsburgh, correct? I started off as a musician, songwriter, playing in bands. I got to make a record uh, and was just spellbound by what was happening through the recording process, you know, other than my side of the glass. I was kind of like, I couldn't wait to get into the control room. Uh, and then I started making records for my friends, and then some of those records became regionally success successful. And um, I had a great mentor in Pittsburgh who took me under his wing, and, and who I would have never been able to make my way through the knowledge gap in my worldview as a creator without this guy. And he was very patient with me. But through that process of seven or eight years working in Pittsburgh, I ended up being the chief engineer at a the biggest recording studio in Pittsburgh and one of a few guys that if you were going to go make a serious record, you'd go make it with this dude, right? Mm -hmm. I was one of those guys. Uh, and then went off to New York City for a decade. Um, I had done a record in Pittsburgh where um, a big producer flew in to steal a record from me and I was so pumped and honored that I did a record worth stealing. I asked the manager if I could go pick the guy up from the airport. So I went up and picked up Ron St. Germain who had done a bunch of great records, did that tool record, notably the oh, undertow record that he mixed that was just spectacular, 311 and the Rolling Stones and Living Keller, not Living Keller. Is that the name of the band? In Living, uh, in Living Keller. Yeah, I was thinking of the TV show. Um, so I picked his brain on the way back from the airport where he flew in on his own private plane and he told me I had to get out of Pittsburgh. So moved to New York City for a decade. Uh, then made a, a record in, in New York City with an artist that um, ended up working with some producers that were big, big deal producers. Uh, and I got to jump on the, a record with Emmylou Harris and Daniel Lanwall and Malcolm Byrne. So I made my way to Nashville to do a record after 10 years in New York and and then was just like, holy smokes, you know. And through that, through the different iterations, it was like, I was always a creator always making music and writing music, uh, started engineering, got that sort of under my belt in the old school day. I worked uh, for 10 years before computers. So 10 years of hardcore tape machines and synchronization with, you know, Zeta Smith timeline machines and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and, and then the natural iteration was to become a producer uh, and transition into producing and, and mixing, uh, mixing records was a, one of those things where you could charge whatever you wanted if you were successful enough. And, and I loved 
making the final product. So it was all kind of blurred together for me. At any moment, we could throw a bridge into the song. Let right? Me, let me jump back real quick because you mentioned Emily, Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah. Is that the easiest vocalist you've ever had to mix? She's got a stunning voice. Unreal. There's a couple people when you pull up the microphones and you're just like, hey, this is um, They'll sound good in an SM57 or a Sony C37. She, We recorded her with C, two Sony uh, C37As, and she played and sang at the same time. And we'd have, you know, mic on the guitar, mic on the voice. You literally could have put anything on her voice, and it would be Emmy Harris. I would imagine. Yeah. So you mentioned coming to Nashville. What's the first number one you had when you were after you got here and started working in Nashville? As a songwriter? Your first number one was when you, once you, after you moved to Nashville, correct? Well, as a as songwriter. A song, as a songwriter. Yeah. Um, I moved to Nashville. I was mixing a ton of records and making good money doing that um, and even making points on the record. So they would pay me money and points, which is back-end mm -hmm. money, which you usually didn't get as a mix engineer, you know, but every once in a while, maybe you'd come down 500 bucks on your rate for the day and they'd give you points. And I was just working nonstop every day and it was like I couldn't keep up with it and then I got my publishing deal and I had to literally woodshed that business I had to stop mixing records which for me a guy from Pittsburgh who was insecure financially insecure you know I didn't want to do that you know but um I knew it was at the end of the day you start saying hey why am I here what am I supposed to be doing uh and you start to think about your purpose uh so I just took a leap of faith and stopped mixing records, turning down all those records. And then every day, just writing, making demos, writing, making demos after three years, which is fast. After three years of that, um, first number one was uh, Jimmy Wayne. Do you believe me now with Tim Johnson and Dave Pahanish? Mm -hmm. The three of us wrote that song, Tim Johnson, amazing hit songwriter that we were lucky to have him write with us. Nobody wants to write with a non-hit songwriter when you're a song hit songwriter. So we were decidedly not hit songwriters. Um, and he saw something there and um, he wrote all the lyrics to that. We did one of those deals like what hurts, not what hurts the most, but these days, the Jeffrey Steele song where he just got, right. we gave him a track and a really good uh, syllable vocal where it was just na 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 all the little inflections and then he just put the lyrics to it and he put the lyrics to it and um it was such a country lyric with such a wild track you know i don't know if you know it was on the radio the week before us going number one was george Strait's troubadour mm -hmm. so that's where country music was and then you put do you believe me now on the radio and it was like people were like People tell me that they pulled over and looked at their radio when they heard that coming out of country radio. It was such a such a leap. Nowadays, it's what all country radio is. And but it stayed there for multiple weeks, right? Three week number one. Wow, both charts. Replacing a George Strait troubadour is a is a big deal. Yeah, that was that was big. Yeah, it was a little surreal, you know, getting your first number one like that, and then being like, I remember driving up. I was near the Wedgwood exit, and I remember thinking to myself. When I die, they'll say, he once had a number one. Like, it was that level of accomplishment. Like, it was a notable thing. And um, and I thought to myself, isn't that, isn't that cool? That, wow. you know, one day, I've done something in my musical career that uh, I'll be able to have as an epitaph that was big enough of an accomplishment. Uh, which is, you know, I think what we're all searching for is someone to say, like, hey, you did it. Yeah. 
What about, well, I guess I should preface this with saying, when I heard Keith Urban's Without You, I was 100% sure he had written that song. Because mm-hmm. it was basically what, to me, what was a Keith Urban uh, autobiographical song. But it turns out you and Dave yeah. wrote it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that song. That song, Keith is on record as saying it's the most autobiographical song that he never wrote. That and, makes um, sense. It was just, you know, divine timing. You know, write these songs and you think they're really special, uh, but they have to, you have to let them go. Let them go out into the world. And when people come up and they say, hey, I can't believe that song isn't cut, it actually makes you feel really good because you know that people really think it's a great song. And that song went on for years with multiple people trying to get it to Keith Urban saying people like in his band uh, that I was doing records, like they were session musicians. Mark Hill took a copy of it and wanted to play it for Keith and never heard. And then Tom Bukovac uh, took a copy and wanted to play it for Keith and never heard anything back. And then the next year, Emily West, who was on Capitol, I was writing with her and we cut some sides on her. She took it and then uh, he called the next day and said he was going to cut it. And at the number one party, he said he never heard it the other times. So, oh, really? But, you know, he hadn't had his baby girl versus two his baby girl. Dave had gone to um, Belize with his new wife or wife-to-be, I think, at that time. And it was kind of like Dave had written this song like as a gratitude of, you know, just overwhelmed of he had just bought a new car, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the original lyric was the new car. The guitar, right? And so we sort of said, okay, fast cars, guitars. He came back with a really formed song that we ended up sort of getting the supercharging the chorus, cleaning it up, and then writing the second verse. And, uh, you know, first verse and chorus was kind of, it was really there. And it was a beautiful song that was kind of inspired by Danny's song. Uh, huh. If you look at the chord changes in that, yeah. it's a one flat seven. Uh, you know, so it's like it's based off of the, we were trying to make it be feel like Danny's song. Yeah. Right. Even though it's totally different. Our demo for that is just a banjo, um, an acoustic guitar and a shaker. He plays the banjo in the video. Yeah. yeah. Keith does. Yeah. Okay. We'd have to find the part of it, uh, Joey. But there anyway, he's playing. I think he's playing the gold tone six string. Yeah. I bought that guitar because... He, that's the one he said to get. Oh, is that when it ended and, up in your studio? And I still didn't, to, I just sold it. And I cannot, for the life of me, play that thing. You have to be like, you have to think like a banjo player to play it. I play it like a acoustic guitar player, and it just sounds like a horrible acoustic guitar when I play it. I own that exact model because I saw um, Danny Rader yeah. playing it when I was doing my demos in your studio many moons a year, many moons ago. It might have been my it actual gold tone. Yeah. Yeah. That guy's amazing. He'll just jump out and run and grab a uh, mandolin. Then he'll go grab the bazooki. That guy's one of the best uh, musicians I've ever seen in the studio. Yeah. So, uh, did we find it? I see the acoustic. He's old Martin. Yeah. Old there we go. There it is. War Martin. He's playing the banjo right there. Actually, it's called a, a banjitar. A banjitar? Yeah, everybody calls it a ganjo, but I think the <laughs> official name by uh, Gold Tone is banjitar, if you're buying one. Is now, it six strings? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's tuned like a regular acoustic. And now they make, Gold Tone makes a six-string mandolin, which is fun to play because your fingers don't get all jammed up. I've got one of those. Do you? It's amazing. 
What about winning a Grammy with Joey and Rory, one of the most special couples ever in country music? Yeah. And it was, was it their last album? Yeah. The uh, the reason that record was so special was that they'd kind of had this incredible story. Everyone has somebody that's died of cancer. So they decided rather than retreat into the, and close the shades, they decided to live that story out loud for everyone to see. And uh, I think everybody kind of felt like, you know, if you've had a loved one die of cancer, you've seen the progression that it takes. And um, I think everyone kind of felt like their story was finally being told. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was, you know, all traditional hymns. And it outsold one week on Billboard. It was the number one record all genre. Above every rap record, every pop record, every Ed Sheeran record, every Taylor's, it was the number one record, all genre. It was a 20-week number one in the Christian community. It was a five- or six-week number one in the country charts. It was the second biggest-selling record behind Chris Stapleton that year. Wow. And was it because it was so masterfully produced? I don't think so. I'm not going to, you know, I mean, I think we did a good job. Me and Rory produced that. Um, but it was just a story that everyone finally felt like their story was being told. And we did a good job on it. You know, it was, but you do a lot of good job on a lot of records, but it was the perfect uh, lightning and bottle of like incredible story that needs to be told. And it was everywhere. It was on Good Morning America. It was on the Today Show. It was all over. If you were looking anywhere, you were hearing about their story. And um, incredible to be a part of that. They were good friends of mine. Rory came to me. I'll tell you the kind of guy Rory is. Rory came to me and said, hey, you know, I'd done the Inspired record for them that was a platinum selling thing. They shot the DVD in my barn. So if you have the DVD for that or have seen uh, the live concert for that, it's actually shot in my studio in my barn. Rory came to me and said, hey, we want to do this this record, uh, the Hymns record. And um, and I said, okay, let's do it. And um, they're friends of mine. And I was like, whatever I need to do, I was the perfect person to sort of help piece this record together because she was in a little, she was sicker than she had been. So we had to piece together vocals. Some done on USB mics in a hotel room some done uh scratch vocal mics like a c12 in a big studio that was a scratch vocal some on you know just a myriad we'd have four or five different vocal takes to build one master vocal take all very varied in regards to their quality and what they were you know we're talking about a usb microphone versus a you know a elam you know or telefunken so you know uh i felt like okay i'm a person that can help them get this done and i said rory pay me between $1 and $1 million. Pay me whatever you want. Give them a little range. For the studio time. You know, yeah. it's like, I just felt like I was supposed to help them make that record. And um, of course they paid me just fine. And, um, and then the producer deal we did was a handshake deal. We don't, we've, to this day, we've never had paper on that deal. Wow. And I've uh, made more money on the back. I've made enough money on the back end of that, that it's outperformed some hit songs. We're talking multiple six figures over the life of the royalties from that. And it's never been, there's no deal. All these other points that I've gotten on records, I've never gotten paid on the back end of a record. But just from a handshake deal and um, him honoring his word, you know, that's 
that's that's the kind of people you want to make records with. Amen. I want to ask you as a producer, before the awards, before the sales started coming in, what it meant to you to be able to be a part of what you knew was going to be an important album at an important time in her life and facilitate that it, art. It was important to them. It's hymns that are important to us. That's the name of the record. Mm -hmm. And I was all in because they were friends of mine and I felt like I was the right tool to help them get that record done mm -hmm. and it was super important because it was the end of her life and these were the, her favorite hymns at a time where she was crossing over and it was like okay these are more significant even than us loving hymns right and um no one expected it to be a grammy award-winning record or the sales uh, i'll tell you what i was in the jungle in guatemala at nick perdemo's farm cigar place mm -hmm. and we had dial-up internet which had the old carrier tone you could hear the you know it was one of those internets from 1980 yeah and we're in this we're in this little little kind of hotel that's nice but very much in the jungle and i start getting people are texting me like hey that that record's number two on iTunes. Hey, that record's number one on Amazon, right? And I was like, wow. The record had just gotten released the week I was down there. And then when I got back, I found out they sold 2,000 digital copies of that record in that week, which is big. And it put them in the number one position. I was a little blown away that 2,000 digital copies will get you a number one record. Wow. That week. But what we couldn't have known is that it sold 68,000 hard copies. People got up, got into their cars, went to Cracker Barrel, went to Walmart, and bought every record. That, they sold out, That's right? Unreal. In the next week, I think we sold even more because they shipped more records in. We sold over a half a million copies a long time ago just in that little area in front of Cracker Barrel. That little wow. store they have, they gave us a gold record from Cracker Barrel. And this was like years ago. So I'm sure it's sold. It's still in there selling. So we, did, we had no idea that it was going to be have the impact that it had. But I think the reality of that is, yeah, you do the good work. You do it for the right reasons because you love people and you want to help tell their story. I was honored that I got to be the one that was able to help tell that story, that they trusted me to do that and work with them to do that. Uh, and then it's like, who knows what's going to poke its head up at the end of the year and be a massive record. And that record was one of them, and it was just the story. It was just that people connected with um, everyone has had a father or a mother or a child die of cancer, and they've had to be that person that felt like they were all alone going through it. And here it was like, hey, that's, that's my story. So I think people just really put themselves in the first position on that story, and the record was sort of the, uh, the byproduct of that story, which yeah. was just incredible. For you personally – you know, you've you worked your way up as a mix engineer, producer, songwriter. What did it mean to you to stand on that stage with a Grammy in your hand? That's great. Very, I tell people very few things end up being as rewarding as you picture them. It's like, oh, I can't wait till I get a gold record. That was if I just had gold record as a kid from Pittsburgh, I'd be like, I did something in the music business. It means that I was valid. And then you know, you get the gold record, and there's grief. The band doesn't want to pay you. 
<laughs> record company stops paying the royalties or, you know, there's always like for every ounce of glory, there's a bucket of misery that is usually associated with all of your timeline. And it never feels the way that you hope that it will feel. Um, having a number one song was pretty great. There was a lot of grief around that too, but it, it really was rewarding. Uh, the Grammy was the only thing that had no downside. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful story. I got to fly out with my wife to Los Angeles, and uh, she looked beautiful. Um, we've got this great picture of us where the light was just perfect. We were at the Staples Center, and I was like, just stop. I took a picture of my wife, um, and I have maybe one, the best picture of my wife ever. She just looks gorgeous. And in it is the silhouette. Someone walked in front of us. And when I looked at it, it was Ron Jeremy. Oh, it's the most incredible it's like alfred hitchcock he's the only person you can fully recognize from just his silhouette so i've got this great picture i've cropped him out of it on most of them but i imagine i do have i'll get you this picture and you can put it in the original picture with ron jeremy and after he walked by i think i looked and saw that it was ron jeremy but i've got this picture of her with the silhouette of ron jerry about to walk into frame just his shadow and you can tell it's Ron Jeremy. Sure. It's incredible. Joey, you'll amaze me if you can find the picture. <laughs> I will find it for you and send it to you because you know, most of the pictures are just cropped out. I, I've cropped out Ron just because she looks so perfect in it. That's what you want to do. You want to send your friend's pictures. Here's a picture of my wife with Ron Jeremy. <laughs> I don't even know what he was doing there. But um, but that, mean, right? How could he possibly be there? Who knows? But it was an amazing. I mean, he was big, right? Like celebrities, oh, he's infamous. I mean, we know, but so like he has money. So why would he not go to that if he has the spare money? It's, it's like the award show. Like I feel like most seen and be seen. Yeah, he's been seen. But we had a we had an amazing night, and I two That's of awesome. two of my guys that were the beginning of the Apprentice Academy to the students that were studying under me. Uh, those guys both won Grammys too because they were on that record. So oh, they they were out in LA too. Well, you know what? Let's talk about that real quick. So just for the people that have been watching this show since the beginning, you know, our producer, Joey, uh, Joey is a student of the Apprentice Academy. And if you want to talk about that real quick, please do. Yes, he was. Talk about the Apprentice Academy or about Joey? Uh, you know, either. Joey's a great subject. That's for sure. Well, you know, it's he's he is symptomatic of the people that come to the Apprentice Academy. We're a 16 week program because we don't believe that you need to take Spanish and the humanities to make records, right. right? You need to have be influenced by culture, but you know, I get the sense that people were three and a half years behind that are going to four year institutions. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it's all about doing And Joey comes from Pittsburgh like myself. And I think most people, uh, I'll speak for myself. I learn better by doing we don't have any reading in our program. It's just how to make records, how to be a part of great records, how to be in the room and make it better, how to be te- technically so proficient that you've got the muscle memory that you can allow creativity to, to drive the day, right? That's mm-hmm. the overarching goal. And we do it in 16 weeks. And and if you can learn from somebody who has a worldview, like I got to learn from Greg Vizza, who was that mentor that I had, I learned his worldview on how he sees sound and how he sees production. And now that became my worldview. And my world's very different than his. But like on Earth, we know if you tried to explain to someone from another planet that rain falls out of the sky at any given time, 
that's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Or that we've got gravity that pulls us down, or we can dive into this liquid. And swim. There's these things about Earth that aren't so odd to us. Wind, something hits you in the face and you, you can't see it, and you don't know anything about it, but wind is a thing on our planet. Right? So once you know the rules of the world of audio, your worldview of audio and production, well, then you can bend them. You can live within them, you know where to take chances, but you have a grounding point. There's so many decisions to be made when making a great record that you almost have to filter out some of those decisions so that you've got an arrow towards the purpose of what is the best thing for that song, right? And right. that's that's what we really try to teach. And we try to teach it, and you know, we teach it with Ron Petroff's the other instructor. He went through the program, and he was nominated for a Grammy another year, uh, in Sweden for a record we had done for BMG and uh, the band Sanex. Oh, Ron's the man. But Ron teaches a course with me as well. And Ron is at a master level. I'm at a master level because it, it's a consequence of doing it for 30 years. Right. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but old timers know how to take tie rods off of cars that are stuck on there. Right. You, that's what we do. And our goal is to, share our world view with them and then try to get them to see things in a 360 degree sphere so they have comprehension so when they go forward they've got our, our roles our worldview on audio but they're able to build their own world with it and so underground basket weaving won't make you a better better audio engineer it's not gonna do much for you so it might help you store your bread all the bread you're gonna make Joey, what about, let's get your Yelp review. This is a great time for us to have you chime in. I think the best part of the school, or the the program at least, is the hands-on compared to what I've, I called him actually a year before I went through my mutual friend who, his dad is good friends with you. and Bill Morse. Bill Morse. And he was like, if you're serious about it, my my brother, you know, we're at Thursdays. And yeah. he's like, my brother, he, he does it. And I was at a point where I was charging like, I think 10 or $15 an hour to record because I didn't know what I was doing. But I was like, oh, I could make something. So I was just doing raw recordings and trying to mix it. I was like, huh. So I called him and he was like, if you're serious about it, you should totally look into coming here. We talked about it for a while on the phone. You were You were like in New York or something. It was like you're on your way back. And then I came down for my birthday last year and I visited the barn and I was like, oh, this is it. And my biggest concern with going there was what my level was at. Because I'd only been producing for like three years, mixing barely. And I think it's it's like the best environment for you to be in. I've t- I, anybody who's interested that has talked to me about engineering, production, every, anything like that, I recommend going to your, your, your school. Everybody Man, works thanks. together. Everybody works together. There's no like comp- competitive aspect to it. Everybody has, it's like everybody's an equal and you really get a good course on how to do and what to do and wh- what direction you can go with certain things once you comprehend them. Like it's, it's really good. A lot of people feel, have that fear of like not being prepared to take the course. Yeah. And I'm like, you're here to learn exactly yeah i tell we had uh tom sweeney just went through the course and he was really filled with anxiety prior feeling like he didn't have enough of a basis to start the program and our goal is that your grandmother could take the course Mm -hmm. if you know what you're doing you shouldn't be in our course you should be out making records so 
we take people that don't understand file structures or how to store a file on a PC or a Mac, or we take people that are not really uh, comprehending a lot of the issues with just data storage or microphones or where to put them. You know, our goal is to take you from nothing and graduate you at a level of competence that is is really above uh what we think is best in class. All of our guys can graduate and set up a full-blown Nashville session with talkbacks, multi-track playbacks, as well as record a full-blown deal. Uh, I get guys that graduate from the best schools in the country coming to intern, and they can't hook up a machine. I'll say, hey, can you hook up the tape machine? And it's, you know, it's a different, a totally different muscle in regards to do, knowing, reading versus doing. So the only thing I can do with the tape machine is pull up my Studer A800 on uh, UA. <laughs> Let's pull it up. Um, there's a couple of videos I put up there for you, Joey, yeah. of the West Barn. This is, forgive me if I'm plugging somebody, but this is the most beautiful recording studio in the world. Yeah. I haven't been to all the studios, but as far as this one goes, uh, yeah, we don't want to get copyrighted by Joe for his, uh, <laughs> but is this on the screen? Um, ben? Yeah, that's... So this is the West Barn, and this is where you teach... Uh, the academy's out of the West Barn, isn't yeah. it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, we had an old dairy barn, a multi-purpose barn that sat on there that we tore down and, and built this barn. And uh, a lot of the old wood from that barn are incorpor is incorporated in the studio. But, you know, people think it's like, oh, did you rehab the barn? And I take that as a big compliment. Yeah. The reality is it's a full-blown 200-amp service, seven tons of HVAC, you know, wires through the conduit. So it's very, like, floated floors. It's very modern. Um, there's the old picture. That's Look the old that. barn that sat there. And, wow. That's and all that wood is what's all over those isoboos and whatnot. But um, I love that people think that we, we rehabbed an old barn because it kind of maintained its, its spirit. It's a great spot. Yeah, doing my demos there was a very special time. Now, since we're talking recording studios, uh, I know Joey might be able to pull up Chat GPT or some of his AI stuff. What does Joe West think about AI music and the future of production? We talked about this in, in class. We talked about it a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, there's been, all along the timeline, there's been you needed to go into a big studio to make records when I, I started. And then they brought in these, what were called ADATs, these little digital eight track recorders you could sync together and have 24 tracks at home. And we all speculated as to what that would do to the industry. Uh, all the speculation that's happened time after time, CDs going away, going to MP3s, and then the, the, the rampant uh, BitTorrent sites, all the changes that happened. As a songwriter, we went from, what do they say? It's like, 10,000 songwriters down to mm -hmm. 80 or 90% of them on st staff positions are gone. Change is the one constant. And with change becomes opportunity. But, you know, there's also a bunch of fear with change. I think um, at the end of the day, it if it takes over and there's no more songwriters because chat GBT is writing all the songs, okay, I'll still write songs. Right. I'll still record them. And if somebody wants to listen to them, great. But, you know, we do it because we're supposed to do it. And all the speculation as to our demise, um, I can't, 
even start thinking that way because it turns into an avalanche of negativity. Yeah. So I just try to keep doing what I do, what I feel like I'm put here to do. Well, Joey and I were talking to Roger Murrow with about this after our podcast, and he, I kind of pointed out to Roger because on on air we were talking about how Roger and Jim McBride, we had both messed around with ChatGPT with them, and they were both like, "That thing doesn't talk like us," so I'm not worried about it yet. It will. It will. And that's yeah. that's the point that I made to Roger. I said, my concern about the future is at what point is it going to be some kid just got out of college, has an interest in music, and some publisher says, hey, I'll pay you 50000 a year, sit at that computer all day, churn out thousands of songs, find me one or two good ones. Well, the problem is that you won't need the student to do that. Oh, no. You'll just build an animated artist, like an AI-generated artist that produces all their own content. And you'll have a, a hundred of them out there doing all the genres, you know? I mean, I, I'm more worried about what it's going to do in regards to s culturally and societally. At what point does ChatGBT become the traffic court? And uh, at what point does does it become, what's the, um, what do they call in, in Terminator? Oh, what's the name of the? Skynet. Oh, yeah. yeah. At what point does it Skynet. become Skynet and we're all just like running for cover? You know, I mean, I'm more worried about that than I am right. music. What music I'll be listening right. to when I'm running into a cave. Like the AI drones that are able to shoot without even being commanded to shoot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm worried about the future, In but, you know, I, can, I recently have really gotten into... Jimmy Wayne recently told me, he thanked me for doing something. And I said, oh, man, that's, don't, you don't have to thank me for that. And he says, you gave your time, and time is really all we have. Yeah. And I remember thinking about that. It's like, wow, it's true. It's really all you have. So when people give you their time, be present. Don't be looking at your phone. Don't be in every room you're in, be 100% in that room. Because that's all you have to, to give. And then I started to think further into it. I'm like, you know, a lot of people that I know live in the past, a lot of people, especially songwriters and creators, live in the future. Those are both a waste of time. You only get time doled out to you one second at a time mm -hmm. we get to experience the past and the future as the future is coming towards us we get to experience it in one second increments 1000 milliseconds 10,000 nanoseconds or you know as you divide it you get it doled out to you one second at a time so if you are not present in the moment that you are in you're wasting time and you're not being respectful of the people that you're sharing that time. They've given their one second of time with you. We'll spend 60 minutes together. I need to be 100% present. I need to be with people that I'm with. And I need to, when I go out back to my house, I need to be with my family. Right? And mm -hmm. I find that if I do that, I'm doing the best work I can do. Like everything... I'm doing, I want to swing for the fences. I want to make sure that we're doing the best thing for the record, for the song, for the artist, in that order, right? For the song first, right? Song, record, and artist. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, well, then every once in a while, you're going to have the records every couple years that are big records that come out just because they're great, just because the timing's right, because you did, you were 100% present in that moment. And you don't get to choose them. That's the that's the thing. You don't. You work on a hundred records or hundred projects a year. You don't get to choose which ones are going to be successful. So you got to show up to each and every one of them every day. It's funny you point this out because since I started doing this podcast, I noticed like the quality of conversation over one to two hours 
is so much greater inside this room when you get to sit with someone and there is, they've kind of got it built, it caked in that I'm not going to take my phone out. I'm not going to be distracted. And then you go out in the real world and everyone's just on their phone and you're like, God, we miss, we're missing conversations. I'm guilty of it as well. I am too. I love TikTok. I mean, I learned so much on TikTok. I mean, I love it. But when I'm with people, I'm with them. Yeah. Right? I'll be in bed watching television and TikTok at the same time because whatever. You know, I'll scroll through my timeline. But, you know, my goal, I'm not saying I'm successful at it, but my goal is to be 100%. If someone's got, gotten into their car and come to my studio for the day, I need to be present. Well, meditation has taught me over the last kind of four years that it's it's almost a muscle inside of you, your attention span, that the longer you work at it, the better you get at it. Hmm. And so I, that's one of the things I appreciate about meditation is it teaches you how to be present for longer extended periods of times. Anyone that has ever practiced it for longer than three months, but you have to do it 90 days, it's significant results have been shown that their ability to be more present at various parts throughout the day if you're doing it every day and practicing it. So it's one of the other aspects. I think you might have found that with earthing because, um, you know, you get more grounded from the um, ne- neutrons that are under or electrons. Well, essentially, you're grounding yourself like you ground a plug out. Like a plug, yeah. Right. My mom does that. She does she? Does, yeah, she does every day. That seems so fruity to me. Like the idea of it seems so hippie. That's why I told my mom. It's the exact thing I told her. But I think it really works. Well, okay. So this is what I was actually, I meant to ask you this. And balance. I smoke a cigar while I do it. So it's like I get to like, <laughs> my son is like the irony of that is lost on my son. I forgot to ask you about Sonic Bloom earlier. So here's the thing I learned the other day. And immediately I, I sent the message to Shimshack since he's into all that stuff. Look up Sonic Bloom. So they discovered that when there is morning dew on plants and the birds sing above those plants from the hours of like 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., they're singing at 3,000 to 5,000 kilohertz frequency. Those plants uh, began to yield 50 to 500% more crop. And now there are products called Sonic Bloom for spraying the dew and uh, playing, uh, I guess, I don't know how they do it. I guess they do bird music. Mm -hmm. And they actually, you know, they've recreated it and they play it over the plants. And the plants show significant more because of what's going on under the ground. It actually is everything working in harmony. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And if it works, it works. Yeah. You know, that's one of those things I think, ah, that's a bunch of baloney. That's what I thought. My instinct is to say, oh, man, I don't believe that. But then it's like, hey, if you have the yield and you can prove it, I mean, who knows half the stuff. There's so many times where I think I have an understanding of something and then some I see it completely differently. It's been revealed to me how wrong my perception of something is. Yeah. Uh, And then it's like, okay, I need to be more open to, to anything. What is it? Tell me what it says up there, Joey. It says that it's a technique developed by Dan Carlson, which it, like you said, it improves uh, plant growth and it says vigor. And it consists of sonic bloom liquid concentrate in a cassette, mm. which is of classical music, which overlays a chirping sound that plants like and allows them to increase their growth and production. I'm just like, y'all, I hear it and I think granola, but then I read about it and I'm like, wait, this might be true. That sounds It's weird. so interesting. That sounds phony. So anyway, uh, well, let me ask you something. I don't know if we have time to go into film and TV, but I will mention that Joe has really excelled in film and TV, 
songwriting, mixing engineer, producing. You've put together a remarkable career. And one of the things I love about that is it's all under the umbrella of creativity. So how have you approached, you know, your drive to make it and create sustained success over a long, remarkable career? How um how you reflect on it and your advice to others. Well, I always tell people that as a younger version of me, I was always filled with anxiety about decisions I had to make. And and I'm a firm believer that you cannot write a good song in fight or flight. If somebody's afraid for their life, they're not going to be able to create anything. Their creativity goes out the window, right? So I spent a lot of my life worrying that the decision to not go to Los Angeles to work on a Metallica record was a bad decision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then after decades of being in the music business, I slowly realized that every decision that I made was almost like it had already been made, mm-hmm. right? I was wondering, I was on this chapter of my story, but all the rest of the book had already been, had been written. And it means like, hey, you can't stop and decide that you like meth and go live in a VW van, you know, for the rest of your life. You can't make bad decisions, mm-hmm. right? You can't make self-destructive decisions. But as long as you're doing the best that you can, life works out for you. And success is just a byproduct of the the laws of probability. If you rob enough liquor stores, eventually you're going to get caught. If you make enough records, eventually one of them is going to be a gold record. Right? It's a mm-hmm. consequence of the yeah. behavior. So once I realized, like, I was kind of, it's that whole Calvinism, predestination versus, you know, did I choose God or did God choose me? You know, and do I really have free will? When you look at your career and that, after 20 some years of it, I had a great piece of like, as long as I make good decisions and I'm present, and I don't have anxiety, I'll be doing my best work. And as long as I live the story that's in front of me, each page, each day, as long as I live that story, I'm going to end up right where I was supposed to be all along. Because I've the I've lived enough of it to realize that all that stuff was supposed to happen, right? And once I got anxiety out of my life, it was all about the song. It was all about making a record that was special. It was all about making that record wrap around an artist in a way that made sense for that artist. And that was just something that was like, I kind of found where the pay dirt was. I kind of found, had figured out the system for me creatively on how to do my best work continuously, how to create situations where the artist is going to perform the best and the song's going to shine and sonically and emotionally. All that stuff I've kind of figured out, and sometimes that requires me to shut up. Mm hmm rather than take charge, which is tough, you know? But once you learn how to prepare a situation, these records want to make themselves almost. And and now every project I'm involved with is kind of, I've learned how to surf the wave, not fight it, right? And I would say the biggest takeaway is give yourself a break, live your best life, be present, Work hard, get rid of anxiety because you can't do anything good whenever you're anxious, when you're stressed out, when you're depressed. You can't do good work. Just keep doing good work. And the work is the reward. The records are the reward. The finished mixes, the songs you write that nobody will hear or care about, they're the payment. And if you look at it that way, when they go off and do something else, it's just a blessing. It's gravy. You know, and 
if you do enough of them, it's like robbing liquor stores. Eventually, you're going to get caught. Law of large numbers. Yeah. Even a broken watch is right twice a day. Right. That's the law of averages, you know? So once I sort of just looked at it as like, hey, I'm going to work today, be present, and I'm going to do the best I can to make something really special that's better than me. Seinfeld had said one time, uh, he was talking to a comedian, and the comedian was just going on and on about the response, the numbers, ticket sales. And he was like, that's the work is the goal. Yeah. You have to love going out there. If all you're thinking about is the end, mm -hmm. the outcome, you're not really in the work. You're just thinking outcome, outcome. So I appreciate when you say that. Joey, what do you have, my friend? You got any questions? I don't. I think that was that this, especially at the end there, like that was powerful to, just for me to listen to, even though I've, I've heard you talk a lot about a lot of things and it's like definitely spoken to me message wise, but just that at the end was like, that was good. <laughs> that's perfect for me to hear. Well, I love like, that's part of my goal. I was on the phone with an artist, a veteran artist, uh, in the car, whenever you pulled in and he was apologetic to me because he was like, Oh, I don't, I didn't want to take too much of your time. And you listened and like, I'm sorry. And I was like, Stop apologizing. It's like people like part of what I like to do selfishly is be a part of great moments, great yeah. connect with people, find a way that I can connect, get rid of Joey's anxiety so he can be a better artist tomorrow. And today, right. With this artist, the veteran artist, it's like, I'm talking to you on the phone because I get something out of it. Yeah a part of your story, a part of your creativity. If I can help you feel better about it and help you with this record he's in the middle of, get better mixes or get better realizations of the production, if I can be a footnote in that and that record goes on to do something, I'm doing that selfishly because I just love it. I love the connection. It's not work for me, right? So I love being that person that, you know, as a kid, my dad had all the tricks to do anything blue collar. And that's the stuff you'll never get from a book, but it made my life so much easier, right? And I love being that for folks in my life, whether they're my brother-in-law or an artist that I met in Georgia or a student that comes through the school. Uh, I don't mind being on the phone with people. So, What about, since we have a few more minutes, can we talk about your documentary or is it kind of in... Which one? Uh, with the uh, Limitless. Oh, Sure. Okay, yeah, let's do that real quick because we have some more time and I would like to promote that documentary. Yeah. Is it available on the internet or have you taken it down because of I've, the film festivals? I took it down because of film festivals, but I think I'm going to put it back up. I so hope you do. I'll put it, I will put it back up for this. Okay, so for people listening, you can listen, you can watch it soon called Limitless. Just yeah. give them a brief synopsis. I had seen a, a young guy on Facebook. This video had like 300 million views and it was through a... a an organization called Born Different and people that like he was born with hand heart syndrome so he has no arms and no legs so torsal head and he's got I guess like some a bit of a shoulder blade because he's able to like I watched him make macaroni and cheese at, you know Sunray. on his stove and he goes up and down the stairs and I remember watching this guy his name's Gabe Adams watching him and being like if I had one-tenth of that guy's determination, I'd be a superhuman. Mm -hmm. That's I'd be how a better I feel mixer, 
be a better songwriter, be a better father, I'd be a better everything. But it's like I've got these arms and legs that almost feel to me like I'm cheating, right? And this guy does it without it. So I reached, I somehow reached out to him and we ended up flying out to Utah and making this documentary because he was an artist and he was a good songwriter and good singer. And we had this experience where we just sort of got to participate in each other's lives. Yeah. Right? It just had a mutual admiration. And we made this great record, but had this great experience. And I got to take my son along. And my son was, you know, part of the crew. Yeah. Head of audio. And um did a great job, by the way. Yes, he did. And and we my son got to see that. And my son's a better human because of Gabe Adams. And I'm a better person. And my students at the school are better because of it. It's like once we realize the true potential of what we can do as human beings, we, we sort of limit ourselves. And it's called limitless, L-I-M-B, limb-it-less. So like, um, yeah, it's not up right now. You uh, won't okay. see it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you can see there it right he there. Is. Oh. The that website. was a picture of him with Joe yeah. right there. There we go. If you want to put that on the screen. Yeah, so you just get to the point. I remember being in, in church and this pastor told this story about fleas on this like cake platter and they put the top on and the, they bounce off the top of the mm -hmm. cake dish. And after three days, you could take the, the cake dish away and the fleas would never jump, jump higher than the top that was there. Because they've learned their limits. Right. And I thought to myself, wow, isn't that incredible? And Jimmy Wayne has a lyric said, um, that says, the sky's not the limit because there's footprints on the moon. So if you start to think about things as a creator, like, oh, what are my perceived limitations? And like, what can I do to go beyond that? And you see a guy like Gabe. It was just an incredible story that we got to live out. And when we made that, we didn't really script it other than knowing we wanted to write a song. We ended up writing a song on the side of this beautiful mountain in, um, in Utah, in uh, Bryce Canyon. And we really didn't plan too much of it because we wanted to, it to just organically happen. And before we knew it, it was over and we were dropping them off at the airport. But it was a beautiful thing that we had got to live together. Awesome. Uh, totally uncooked. And it was just the idea was, man, I just want a little bit of what this guy has. If I can live my life that way, I can outperform you know, the cake dish. Yeah, I felt that watching some of the documentary. When I watched it, I was thinking to myself, if this kid can do the things he does, I can do more than I'm doing right now. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Incredible. Well, listen, Joe, I really appreciate you. I want to say before we get out of here, I'm looking forward to 2024, but one of the great blessings for me in 2023 was getting to connect better with you, work with you on some projects. Hopefully, we'll talk about those in the future when you yeah. come back on. Something big, but, but a brewing. I, I think so. I think we got something good, but I really appreciate you and getting to learn from you meant a lot for me in the last oh, year, yeah. and I'm excited to see what happens in the future. Well, thank you for asking me to be on. And yeah, man. Great to see Joey again. We appreciate you, and we'll see you on here again. For everyone at home, appreciate y'all being here. Bye now. <laughs>